It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. And joining me today is a legend of the game, but more importantly, he's a legend of American history. His name is George Raveling. He's a 2015 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, a three-time Pac-10 Coach of the Year. He has coached six teams to the NCAA tournament and earned gold as an assistant on Team USA's 1984 Olympic team in Los Angeles. He has also worked with Nike, the NCAA, USA Basketball, and the NABC, and yet still that is only just a part of the story. Mr. Raveling, thank you very much and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Mr. Raveling, I, I was at Springfield Symphony Hall the night that you were enshrined, and I remember very distinctly you talking about allowing yourself to finally slow down and relax and enjoy the incredible accomplishments. And I think part of that is because your road travels really not just on the hardwood, but but you lead a path right through the civil rights era into modern day America. In the late 1950s, you became the second African-American player in Villanova's history. Can I ask you what it was like going from your D.C. area high school and, and upbringing into a very different climate at Villanova? It was a transformational moment in, in, in my life because I, 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 I began to realize that there was a much bigger uh, uh, world out there than I realized because I grew up in, in, a, in a controlled uh, uh, environment uh, because, because most of America, if not all of America, was segregated. I was even born in a segregated hospital. You know, the three floors were for whites and one floor was for, for uh, what we would call then Negroes. And, and so uh, each step in the journey broadened my perspective of, of, of the, the world that I really lived in. And, and so uh, each time, obviously, it, it presented certain uh, 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 mental challenges and, and adjustments to different types of people. And, and you're, you're constantly being uh, challenged intellectually and socially. So uh, as I look back on it, it was, it, I, I was in a classroom 24 hours a day uh, in a formal classroom during the day, but also in, in a societal classroom the rest of the time, trying to learn how do I fit in uh, along the way. And so because I transcended, you know, so many different uh, uh, social development areas in America, I, I think I was lucky because I, 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 I saw... Uh, the hatred that people can have for one another, but I also saw the love and compassion that people could have for others. And so the, the world I live in today is, is, is vastly different than the world uh, when I entered into it as a young uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, student at the collegiate level. And it's remarkable too to think about just a couple of years later on on a day that 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 we talk about in my household and, and across America and across the world we talk about 
uh, every uh, more, more, we can't talk about it enough. August 28th, 1963, the Lincoln Memorial, you find yourself once again on the doorstep of history. Of course, that is uh, Dr. King delivering one of the most important orations in the history of humanity. And you show up a young George Raveling at 8 a.m. that day to work security up by the podium and then by a chance encounter end up holding and carrying the original copy of the I Have a Dream speech. Is is that moment, st- does it still seem surreal in this Hall of Fame life of yours? It's one of those uh, moments that that has eternal uh, value and, and, and will exist for the, the, the rest of mankind because it was that seminal moment that, that maybe uh, most people are denied. And, and, and once again, I think it's an over-illustration of how lucky I've been in my, in my lifetime. Most of my life really centers around being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I'd love to say that I, it was a strategic plan of mine, but it wasn't. I just have been lucky enough to always be in the right place at the right time. And, and, and it's presented unique opportunities for me uh, to learn and to grow and understand and prosper. Mr. Raveling, I, I know you're trying to be humble here, but to have the courage to look Dr. King in the eyes and ask for the copy of the speech, that's, that's more than just right place at the right time. That's courage in the face of valor, for sure. It's also naiveness, because <laughs> I, I, I'd love to be able to say that I had, I had this whole thing planned, but I didn't. I was just a, a, a naive person who, who didn't know that maybe you shouldn't even ask for it. But, but I, 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 I'm certainly glad that that uh, that I did because it, it allowed me to have a tangible uh, 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 piece of history uh, uh, tattooed on me for the rest of my life. Well, most people have only a pair of those legacy stories in their life and their lives. Yours continues and picks right back up when you're hired by Washington State in 1972 as head coach. Of course, success followed almost immediately after. Can you talk about the transition to coaching after being away from uh, the college game for a few years? Well, I graduated from Villanova with a BS in economics, and I really started out my my uh, uh, career. Uh, from a professional standpoint, as a marketing analyst for Sunoco, a Sun Oil company. And never once in my life did I ever envision myself being a coach. And uh, I just kind of uh, got into it because uh, Jack Kraft, who was then the head basketball coach at Villanova, was very persistent in, in, in pursuing me. And he just wore me down to where I decided, okay, uh, I'll leave the business world because I was grappling with whether I, I wanted to do this for the next 30 years of my life anyway. So I transitioned over into coaching and I never looked back. And, and so it, it, it took me down side roads that I never realized that would exist. There's never been a moment as I reflect back on my life that I uh, I regret becoming a coach. Uh, it, 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 it's probably been a great vehicle uh, and, and, uh, for me throughout my life. Uh, it taught me a lot about myself. Uh, I learned as much about from the, the players I coach as they learned from me. So getting into coaching uh, required me once again to have to 
to reach in, in, inside and 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 and, and feel different uh, skills and and use those skills to be successful. At the time, I went to Washington State, which is in Pullman, Washington, right on the border of Washington and and Idaho. Uh, it was I was the first uh, uh, black coach. And that was then the Pac-8 conference. The, the two, Utah and Colorado and Arizona and Arizona State were not part of the conference at that time. So it was only eight teams. So if you know much about geographics, Washington State probably should have been the last place in the league that would hire a black coach because, uh, because, because there were a few, uh, blacks, um, uh, in, in that, uh, Seattle and Tacoma had some blacks. But it was not a state that, that had a, a heavy black, a significant uh, black population. But you know, the race was never an issue. We had an unbelievable president, Dr. Glenn Carroll, who I remained close friends with right up until the day he died. And so he was, he was very, very supportive of me. I, I'd like to share this with, with something that Dr. Terrell said to me when I was interviewing for the job, and, I, and he, he said that you're going to be the guy. He said to me, he says, Coach, I want you to remember something. I'll always be there when you're losing. I'll never be there when you're winning. And that, was the, that, that set the tone for our, our, our relationship and a friendship that lasted until he died. That's remarkable. And is, I mean, what a good example for leadership structure. Forget about just in sports, just management in general. Isn't that, that's a, that's great. That's a great piece of advice. And so. Well, and, and, and a lot of Washington State was, was learning, keeping your mouth shut, George, and listen. And, 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 and I learned so much from the, I had some of the greatest leadership, uh, uh, community of people that they were sterling leaders and they taught me so much. So following Washington State, you, you had stints at both Southern California and Iowa, but in the interim, as I mentioned in the intro, you earned gold in Los Angeles in 84 as an assistant on that Team USA team that featured some guy named Jordan and a few other guys who weren't that bad. Can you talk to me about how how, how seminal that experience was in the development of George Raveling, the coach? Well, it, it, it goes back to what I said about being in the right place at the right time. People always ask me, how did you, how did you get selected? Well, uh, it goes back to when I was an assistant coach in Villanova, and I'm at a summer league a high school game outside of Philadelphia. And the guy comes up to me at halftime and he says, uh, are you George Rowling? I said, yes. He says, my name's Bob Knight. I'm assistant coach at West Point. Well, when we met, I had no idea that Bob one day would be a, the Olympic coach, but we, we developed a relationship. And when the time came, Bob asked me to be one of his assistants. And and we had a, we had, what a great uh, uh, opportunity it was. And Yes, we had Michael Jordan on there, Patrick Ewan. Uh, we, we, we had Chris Mullen. We had a great team. And um, and we, we were fortunate enough to win the gold medal. And I uh, always wonder what it would be like to, to be the recipient of a gold medal and to stand there and hear the national anthem play 
and, and it could be maybe one of the proudest moments you have as a U.S. citizen, because in reality, the reality is this very seldom in our lifetime as an American citizen does the government come to you and say, we need your help. It's usually the other way around. We're always going to the government asking for help. So America comes to you and they said, we need your help. We need you to help us win a gold medal in basketball. And so when you stand there and you hear the national anthem being played, every fabric of your being is being touched. And, And it's such an emotional moment and a moment when you can be uniquely proud to be an American citizen because you did something that the whole country feels good about. And I don't know if, I, if, if, if that will, will ever happen to me again. But like I said, we, we spend more time asking the government to help us than we've been trying to help the government and help America. So America comes to us and they say, uh, being a vehicle of sports, we need your help. <laughs> hey, man, how, 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 how can you not feel good about that? I love it. Now, since leaving the coaching game, only two more questions for George Raveling here on the Hall of Fame's Legends of the Game podcast. And I appreciate your time so much, sir. Since leaving the coaching game, you've played so many roles, including Nike's Global Basketball Sport Marketing Director. Can you talk about the ways that that role really ties your career all together? Thinking about the economics background, thinking about obviously your your, your work inside the game. See, it strikes me that Nike's role is the perfect way to put a bow on George Raveling's career, is it not? I, I would think that you, you captured it very accurately. Uh, first of all, I was 63 at this time. So here you have a, a, a 60-year-old, 63-year-old black African-American uh, ex-basketball coach uh, having an opportunity to work in maybe what's the second biggest division at Nike next to running. And to be able to uh, get get into this position at, at a transitional moment where where Basketball is, is quickly uh, uh, moving from a domestic sport, a U.S. sport, to a global sport in an authentic way. And so I was able to, over the years with Nike, I was able to, 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 to get a, a seat on the bus and watch basketball transition from, from what it was a, a U.S.-dominated sport, and it still is to some degree, but it's it, it becoming truly an authentic uh, uh, global sport. There are only three countries in the world where basketball is the number one sport in Lithuania, Philippines, and China. And so, but the game is continues to grow in relevance and the participation globally. And so I was able to ride that vehicle and be a, a, an integral part of participating in, in, in the global uh, growth. I remember many times thinking after, over the years after I got out of film over, I used to question why I took all those courses, cost accounting and economics and, 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 and ethics and all those things, because I, I said to myself, you know, I'm never going to use these again. But little did I know 
that God had a plan for me, and, and, but it wasn't going to spring it on me until I was 63 years old. But it, it, it was, it, to me, working at Nike was like uh, going to Harvard Business School. Finally, sir, what does it mean for you to be working with the Basketball Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? Well, from my perspective, I see it as an opportunity to, to give back to the game. I think all of us who have been direct, uh, direct participants of the game or we, we were participants in a, in, in a lesser role, I think we, have, we should have a sense of obligation to give back. I sincerely believe all of us who are on earth to serve other people. That's who I got put us down here. And he put us down here to get big homes and fancy cars and lots of money. He put us down here to, to, to help uh, uh, other people and serve other people. And so it's an opportunity for me to give back to the game uh, in, in, in a very uh, uh, meaningful manner. Uh, the game has, has, has been so much a part of, a dominant part of my life. And so if I can can uh, help serve the Hall of Fame in whatever uh, ways that they feel meaningful, I'm going to continue to do it um, because uh, I owe it to the game. Uh, the Hall of Fame it, 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 it continues a legacy of Dr. Naismith in so many ways. And, and, and not just in winning and losing, not just in how many points you scored, but what the game really does, it mirrors everyday life. You don't win all the time. You don't lose all the time. You learn to participate with black and white and Asians and Latinos. <laughs> you, learn, you learn that you have to follow rules and discipline yourself. So all those things come into play and, and that incentivize me to want to serve and help the Hall of Fame. A 2015 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, George Raveling claims that his life has been the right place at the right time, and sir, I am glad your right place and right time was with me this morning. I am forever thankful. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate you having me as a, as a, a guest on the show. Thank you, sir. <laughs>